you would, please turn back into your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. It's found on page 450 of your pew Bible, or you can turn to it in your worship guide. It's exciting to begin a new year. Whenever we start a new year, I always have a little bit of fear and trepidation as to what it might begin, but I also recognize it is time for a fresh start. And as is our custom at Providence, we mark the first Sunday of the new year by introducing our psalm for the upcoming year. Every year, our congregation takes up a specific psalm to focus upon. And if you're new to this, we ask that you study and you meditate upon it leading up into the spring. And then when our small groups disband uh, for the summer, we all gather together here at the church for our Wednesday night prayer meetings where the psalm of the year becomes the focus of that prayer time. And then finally, hopefully with such immersion in the psalm, we're able to apply it to our families, our ministry, our individual spiritual lives for the remainder of the year. And of course, hopefully by next December, you will have much of it memorized, if not all of it. It's a great way to feast upon the Word of God. Last year, we focused on Psalm 5. We learn what to do when we feel injustice is done to us. We discover that we have a God who listens to the concerns of his children. He does not tolerate evil people, and he will ensure that the guilty are punished. And at the same time, he graciously offers his steadfast love to those who learn to fear him and obey him. The Lord God becomes a shield and a refuge to his people. Nothing can harm them. It was a wonderful psalm of confidence for us. And at our annual meeting, you learned that the eighth psalm will be our focus for 2023. I chose it because it goes hand in hand with our upcoming study in Genesis. The early chapters of Genesis describe mankind's creation, our purpose, and what went horribly wrong that allowed evil to come into the world. Genesis reveals that sin, or rebellion against God, is our greatest enemy. And even from the beginning of our existence, the story anticipates a means of fixing the world and the restoration of the full dignity of our humanity. And Psalm 8 highlights these themes. It will be the perfect backdrop to our study of Genesis. Perhaps too often in reform circles, we are increasingly told how horrible men and women are due to our sin. We are told that we are despicable to our core. We are told that, that we are lowly, that, that we are worms. But we need to be careful with our words. Our humanity, as we were created, was not and is not evil. In fact, when we were created, God declared that we were very good. It is sin that is despicable and what has contaminated us. And yes, each of us are willing accomplices to this rebellion, and we have our own fair share of guilt. But our human flesh, our human souls, our psychological well-being were created with the intention to glorify God, not rebel against Him. Therefore, we might need to calibrate our thinking as to whether or not we've gone too far in disparaging our humanity. We should remember that it is sin that corrupts us. It is sin that is bad, not our humanity. And Psalm 8 emphasizes this. This morning, we're going to examine the psalm in two parts, exposition and application. I want to exposit this psalm to give you something to ponder and think about throughout the year. And then I want to offer some applications regarding how we might think about ourselves and others in light of this truth. So let's begin here with the exposition. This is the Psalter's first praise song. 
And it's untypical compared to those praise songs that follow it in three different ways. First, there is no invitation or command on behalf of the writer to worship Yahweh. For example, listen to these imperatives of Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Or Psalm 105, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Psalm 8 just launches immediately into praise with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There is no command or call for the people to worship. It just begins with worship. Second, it differs in that there is not a because clause in the psalm. Some reason to praise Yahweh because of this or that is absent from this song. So, for example, Psalm 63.3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Or Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The reasons for praising Yahweh will become apparent in Psalm 8, but there is no because clause here. And third, it is the only praise psalm in the Psalter that is addressed wholly to God. It speaks to no one else. Other than the writer's observation, there is no mention of the psalmist or the people. So, for example, in Psalm 4, it begins with, Answer me when I call, O my God, of my righteousness. Or, as in the last year's psalm, Psalm 5, Gear the ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groanings. Nor is it in a plural setting like Psalm 67, verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Psalm 8 is addressed completely and wholly to God. Now, we can learn a few facts even from the heading here. First, the psalm was written by David, and that's going to have relevance a little later in our study in verses 6 through 8 as David was the ruler over Israel. And while he had his flaws, he is considered a type of messianic king to come. And David uses the phrase, son of man, in verse 4, which was a phrase that Jesus frequently used of himself. We also see here that the psalm is addressed to the choir master. Despite that David uses the first person in his observation in verse 3, the psalm is meant for corporate worship. This is not just meant for David's praise, but it's for all the people. And the meaning here of according to the Gittith, which has become lost to us, most likely here means this was a liturgical term, or as Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner suggests, it was the tune that it was to be sung to. Both Psalm 81 and Psalm 84 mention this same word in their headings. Now let's, let's dissect Psalm 8, okay? The psalm can be divided into four parts. Most modern translations designate the sessions here with spacing in between the verses. You have the praise of Yahweh found in verses 1 and 2, the majesty of his universe, which is verses 3 through 4, the value of man in verses 5 through 8, and then it concludes with another outburst of praise in verse 9. So you have the praise of Yahweh, the majesty of his universe, the value of man, and another outburst of praise. So let's start with the first two verses, and there is a lot to unpack in this opening line as it describes a God who is worthy of our praise. David begins with the address, O Lord, our Lord. Now when you see all capital letters in your German Bible here in this word Lord, this means the writer has used the tetragrammaton 
which is a technical way of referring to the four Hebrew letters that make up God's proper name, Yahweh. Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah from the German, means I am. This was the covenantal name that God provided to Moses when he sent him back to Egypt in order to deliver his people from their captivity of slavery. Moses was worried the Israelites wouldn't take him seriously. So we read in Exodus chapter 3, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am, or Yahweh, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And the wordplay works there. Thus, Yahweh is to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the same covenantal name that God gave Abraham when he promised the man that he would be the father of many nations. And behind this name means that he is a God who is self-existing. I am. And the God who always keeps his promises. He guarantees it with his name. But it also has relevance to our study in Genesis that's coming up next, this coming year here. The first time that the covenantal name is used in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 2. Now I'm going to ask you to keep a bookmark here in Psalm 8 and turn to Genesis chapter 1. That should be easy to find. It's on page 1 of your pew Bible. Now when we read the creation account... And we look through it here in chapter 1, we can see the Hebrew word Elohim translated as God all throughout chapter 1. As in verse 1 here, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now remember that thought because that is going to have relevance to uh, the two ver first two verses in Psalm 8, all right? Then you have verse 3, and God said... And then you see it in verse 6 again. And God said, and I can go on, all throughout chapter 1, we only have the Hebrew word Elohim for God in chapter 1. But then once the creation account is finished with the day of rest, the proper name of God is added in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The tetragrammaton is added to the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, literally Yahweh, God. And it's used repeatedly until the end of chapter 3. This implies that there was a covenantal relationship with Adam and Eve. It was originally intended for all of humanity, this relationship. God gave them an assignment, and they were to be blessed in that duty, provided they did not eat of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. But, of course, they violated this covenant in chapter 3. And we'll have to save an explanation for this later, but the Lord willing, it's going to be coming up here just in a few weeks. But the specific phrase here, Yahweh God, does not resume after chapter 3, implying that something in the relationship with God has now been fractured. It is either Yahweh or Elohim, not Yahweh Elohim. Not everyone will know him as both his personal name and his title, God. Something is broken in this intimate knowledge of God with mankind now that sin has entered the world. 
Now keep a bookmark here in Genesis chapter 2, but we're going to turn back to Psalm 8. David addresses Yahweh here as Yahweh, our Lord, meaning this God is the creation's sovereign, going back to the original intention of creation. This is the great I am, ruler of all things. And David declares, how majestic is your name? And using this word name is not just referring to Yahweh's proper name, as we noted earlier. There is meaning behind it. The name of the deity refers to his reputation and his authority. We have a similar usage in English. When someone adheres their name to something, it means that they stand by it. If it stands up as quality, it is to their glory. If it fails, it's to their shame. Here the name of God refers to his glory. And David says that it's majestic. His name is majestic. The Hebrew word for majestic conveys a concept of, of mighty or overwhelming. So, for example, we have like Psalm 76 verse 4. Glorious are you more majestic than the mountains full of praise. And then you have Psalm 93, verse 4. And, and they translate the word here in the ESV as mightier, but it's the same word as majestic. Mightier, same word as majestic. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier, same word as majestic, than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. The Lord on high is majestic. Or the Lord in the conquest in the land of Canaan in Psalm 136. The Lord who killed mighty or majestic kings for his steadfast love endures forever. The idea behind this word majestic is not just that Yahweh is worthy of your admiration, but also of your deferent submission. And then David makes use of two terms here from Genesis 1.1. How majestic is your name in all the earth? You have set your glory above the heavens. Two planes are mentioned here, earth and the heavens. There is no part of creation that God is not sovereign. In just two lines, David has communicated Yahweh's glory, his might, his majesty is over all of it. Like our psalm from two years ago, Psalm 57, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This God, our Lord, is majestic, mighty, glorious, Naturally, he's worthy of our praise and our admiration, along with our submission. But David takes it a step further in verse 2. This praise, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. David says, even coming from the weakest individual, a tiny baby, the praise of Yahweh can silence the Lord's enemies. Yahweh's praise establishes strength. Jesus quoted this verse in Matthew 21. You remember when we studied that? That he triumphantly entered Jerusalem and began healing others, and the scribes became indignant. Listen to their reason for it. Verse 15 of chapter 21 of Matthew. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. I love it. How could the scribes and the priests argue with the truth? 
Hosanna, Hebrew for save us, son of David. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. Do you realize what power is at your disposal when you legitimately proclaim your God? You defeat the enemy. When you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the truth totally disarms and cripples our sovereign's enemies. They may rage, they may get angry, but does not stop the truth or the mission that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Such praise is mighty even in the mouths of babes. And this old Willie, he'd be saying amen right now. And this launches us into the next section in verse 3. David observes all of creation. He looks out into the wonders of space, the moon and the stars that Yahweh has ordained and set into place. Consider this. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains not only our little old solar system, but scientists estimate that it contains between 100 to 400 billion stars. Billion. That's just our galaxy. The Milky Way has several satellite galaxies that are part of a local group of galaxies which form the part of the Virgo supercluster, which in itself is a component of the Leniakea solar uh, supercluster. The universe is vast, it's huge. And David calls this the work of Yahweh's fingers. Not his strong arm, but his fingers. It's, it's an anthropomorphic statement. It's kind of like saying, God did this with his little pinky. It's amazing. And compared to such majesty, we are just a speck in the midst of it. Under such general observation, David can't help but ask himself, what is man, or better translated here, what is a mortal that you were mindful of him or her? I I'd actually like mortal as the better translation because it speaks of our finite nature. We have a beginning and an end on this earth. The stars and the galaxies seemingly go on forever. And yet God does not dote on the moon or the stars or the sun, but on mortal men and women. In light of the powerful majesty of Yahweh embodied in the cosmos, how could one expect Yahweh to pay attention to, to little old human beings? And that is what David asked next. What is the son of man that you care for him? Now, if you have a new international version of the Bible, then the phrase son of man is translated as human being. And to be completely fair to the NIV, in the context of Psalm 8 alone, that is its intended meaning, to emphasize human nature. But the precise phrase or translation is son of man. And most NIVs should have that footnoted, that translation footnoted in their footnotes there. So you can pick up on this term, son of man. And this term is the exact center of the Hebrew poem, the exact center of Psalm 8. I don't think that is a coincidence. The phrase son of man is also a messianic title, which is why the ESV, along with other translations, uses it instead of human beings. We see this messianic phrase in other places of scripture. 
Psalm 80, verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man that you have made strong for yourself. And of course, the most famous instance as a messianic title is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. And of course, we should be blown away that our God, the second person of the Trinity, will take on flesh for all of eternity. What is man that you, Lord, would become one of us? David's going to use this phrase, son of man, again, specifically in reference to himself in Psalm 144. Oh, Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? It's a very similar phrase to what we have here in Psalm 8. Most likely here in our psalm, David is thinking on one like himself, a human being who has been given the right to rule. And so he uses the term here generically, which will later have its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And the next four verses reveal how God attends or cares for humanity. David says that even though we were made a little lower than the angelic beings here, God crowned us with glory and honor. Now you may be wondering, what. How are we lower than the angelic beings? This is not a uh, terms of rank here, but in terms of privilege. Remember, angels have direct access to Yahweh. In Isaiah 6, the prophet saw angels encircling the throne of God. And even according to Job, Job chapter 1, verse 6, even Satan, at least at that moment, has some access to the throne room of God. But yet, despite their privilege of access, men and women are given a greater honor than the angels. We have been crowned with honor and glory. Yahweh has conferred authority upon us to rule his creation. Angels don't do that. They're here to serve us. And here's how in verse 6, look at this, this privilege here. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This goes back to the creation mandate. If you will, turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Don't get caught up here in some gender controversy here, all right? Actually, turn to Genesis chapter 1, sorry. This mandate here to rule over the earth was given to both men and women alike. Let's look at this. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, that's in the plural, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Note the reference there. Both men and women were created in God's image. Gender distinctions are important to the Lord. He created them. Now we're going to speak more on this, Lord willing, the weeks ahead. All right? But note in verse 28, God blessed them, plural, both men and women, and this blessing extended to both genders to be God's vice regents over the earth. God does not create the earth to give it to men and women to toil over it and just to work it, but to rule over it, to have dominion over his creation. 
And this is what blows David away. The majestic Yahweh creates this magnificent universe. He creates the Milky Way with with billions of stars. He creates the sun with a temperature of 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. He creates angels that appear in the sky and battles the spiritual forces of darkness. And yet he creates this magnificent planet with all of its plant life, all of its animal life, and he allows mortal men and women to be his rulers over it. What a privilege! It requires both humility along with the recognition of the honor of this authority. As someone who was a king already, David would be well aware of the responsibility and privilege that men and women have. This causes him to once again end his psalm with another outburst of praise. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Can you see why David would be stunned? So very quickly, let me just give you four concepts here to meditate upon as you contemplate this psalm in the upcoming year. Number one, you matter. You matter. It makes no difference who you are. Male, female, rich or poor, red, black, yellow, brown or white, you are precious in the Lord's sight. As a human being, you matter in the grand scheme of God. You were created in his image. And his son, Jesus, became one of us in the flesh to purchase us and show us how to live. Therefore, you have certain rights and privileges that the rest of creation does not. Based upon your faith in Jesus, you have the possibility of being a son or daughter of the everlasting God. And as nice as they are, trees don't have that privilege. Animals don't have that privilege. Angels don't have that privilege. You do. You are special and you are important to God. Second, you have a purpose. And according to this psalm, you have two duties. You are to rule over the earth and you are to do so in praise of Yahweh. Every human being was intended to have these two purposes. Of course, our original ancestors, Adam and Eve, abused our right to rule by sinning against God. But the hope we have is that the true son of man, the son of the living God, the second Adam, as Paul calls him, came to secure that right for us once again through his death, burial, and resurrection. Something no other spiritual being could do. We needed something much more superior than angels or Moses or the law could ever do for us. We needed a savior to save us from ourselves. This is what Jesus came to do. And it's only by faith in his work that it can be restored. This is why the book of Hebrews quotes our psalm in regards to Jesus. Let's look at that again. You can find it in your worship guide or in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer describes Jesus as our ultimate king, priest, and sacrifice, who is superior to all other rulers and becomes our representative. And Hebrews 2, verse 5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and here is our psalm that testifies to it. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while 
was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The writer's going to go on to say, very convincingly, I might add, that the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus restores humanity to its rightful place before God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, just a few pages over from that. You can see the ultimate purpose for what the writer has been arguing for, our continual access to Yahweh as his image bearers and vice regents on the earth. At the beginning of the passage here, starting in verse 18, the writer's going to describe Mount Sinai when the law was given. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come by what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall, not be, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And here's how you came. Remember the incarnation is invitation to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Through Jesus, the true Son of Man, perfect sacrifice, we get Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. We don't come to him through the law. We don't come to God through the law. We come to God through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What are we receiving, folks? A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And here's our second purpose, to worship and praise God, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And I'll leave it to you just to put this thought in your mind. Notice he does not mention sacrifices. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You were created with the purpose to rule over God's creation and worship him. So not only do you matter, not only do you have a purpose, but you also have a future. Like we just read in Hebrews, there's going to come a day when what was lost will be restored. The image that we just had was shaken away. Like a beautiful woven blanket that's covered in dust, it will be shaken. The dust will be gone, and the beauty of the blanket will be restored. And Lord willing, next week we will see more explicitly what we will be restored to do. We will retain and we will step up to rule over God's creation once again, yet without sin. And knowing this allows you to practice ruling now. If this is our future, we can practice it now. There's no reason why you cannot get into the Word of God to know the mind of God in order to conform to it by obedience and learn to rule well. 
you can begin working on that today. You will be princes and princesses, children of the king, restored to your rightful position. And you will say, what is a mortal man that you are mindful of me, a son of man that you care for me? And the answer is going to be because of Jesus, the true son of man. Your crown of glory and honor has now been restored. Last concept. It's not on your bulletin. I did this intentionally because this is important. I want you to write it down. Begin to praise Yahweh in light of verse 2 throughout this year. Begin doing that now. In your praise of Yahweh, you silence the enemy with truth. This is not just wishful thinking when you're going through a difficult circumstance like the Christian scientist saying this is not really actually occurring. It's saying, in spite of this sinful world that I'm in, I know the truth of the statement that Yahweh rules and reigns over all. This is declaring the truth of God in the midst of battle. Faith-laden statements that, that fills us up and tells us about the reality of the situation in the moment. That not everything seems like it's under subjection, but it is under subjection. It tells us of what Christ has done for us. We call this preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again. So when Satan comes and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him who made an end to all my sin. And we see this displayed all throughout the scriptures. David was promised he was going to be king. And yet the very man he's supposed to replace was trying to kill him. And we have this beautiful Psalter where David is counting on the promises of God and believing in the truth of what was promised to him in the midst of his struggle. We see this with Paul and Silas, don't we, in Acts chapter 16. They are imprisoned for sharing the gospel. And when the jailer comes to find them, what are they doing in prison? Singing. You're giving praise to God. And maybe even more importantly, the example that we should follow is the Lord Jesus. Don't forget what we looked at at Matthew chapter 26, the very night of his crucifixion, or the night before his crucifixion, when he was feeling the weight of everything as he get, approaches the garden. What do we find him doing in Matthew 26, verse 30, or Mark 14, verse 26? He is singing praises to God. He is singing praises because out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. It will steal the enemies and the avengers. Again, we call this preaching the gospel to ourselves. You can do that today. Start getting in the habit of praising Yahweh and recognizing his rule over our lives. Let's pray. Lord, you have provided us with your word. Every bit of it is precious. And so, Lord, the fact that we get to meditate and contemplate on Psalm 8 this year, Lord, it should encourage us. It should remind us that, that we are valuable in your eyes, that we have a true legitimate purpose here on the earth, and that you are going to restore it someday. 
But also, Lord, it should point us directly to the Lord Jesus, the true Son of Man, the one who came to to be our representative of how we should live and to be our pure sacrifice to redeem our souls so that we might live like you created and intended us to be, that we would magnify the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray this for myself and your people, that we would be diligent in studying this psalm, that in the midst of it, Lord, as as we reflect on it, as we memorize it, that, Lord, the truth would saturate our lives and that we would offer praise to you and that we would turn our eyes and gaze on the Lord Jesus who has done everything needed for us to be restored to you. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.